Welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm the uh, small groups pastor. I'm kind of, kind of figuring out what this feels like for a minute. It's like when you're at a table and people are telling stories, and somebody tells a really good story, and you got to come up next. And so, uh, like, I don't know if I can top that. Um, David asked me a few weeks ago. Actually, didn't ask. He told me a few weeks ago that you are going to tell everybody all about you and kind of give them. Everything there is, and one of the things you'll learn about me is that there's really no secrets. I just here it is. This is what I think. This is who I am, where I come from, and my background. And so, I've been spending some time over the last couple of weeks praying about scripture to kind of tell my story or kind of give some insight into that. And the Lord brought an interesting passage to me. It's Hebrews 12:1 through 3, which for me it's hard to relate to because it talks about running your race with endurance, and I don't run. And if you see me running, call the police. Somebody's chasing me. Um, so um, I thought it was just interesting at that point to, to look at that. So um, I'm going to read this passage real quick, and then we'll, we'll get going. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we have so great, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when I think about that passage, um, it kind of brings me back kind of my, to my church story, growing up um, with a great cloud of, of witnesses. You know, the, all of chapter 11 in Hebrews tells, a story about, tells stories about men of faith uh, from the Old Testament, and then Jesus coming along and being the perfecter of that faith. And so as I was growing up, I grew up in a, in a really small town in western Kentucky. Um, David asked a few weeks ago if you'd ever been up a small town, and he kind of put 10,000 on the number. Um, I grew up in a town slightly under 10,000. I remember when the sign went up that we hit the 99 mark. It was like celebration. We thought we've arrived. And then when the stoplight went in, it was really the moment, uh, however unnecessary it happened to be. Uh, there's only two. It was like... Never mind. Uh, but, so, I mean, I grew up in a small town. Everybody knew everybody's business. If you didn't go to church, everybody knew about it. And you'd have, like, a herd of people outside your door. Hey, where were you on Sunday? But in a small town, in a small county, to kind of give you an idea of how church we were, there were 29 Baptist churches. There were 33 Pentecostal churches. There were Church of God, Church of Christ. There was one Catholic church. Um, there was, uh, what was, there was... We even had a Messianic church. I don't think anybody knew what it meant, but um, as far as a Messianic Jewish congregation, but I don't, you know, I don't get that. But So it ended up, we ended up having about 100 churches. So our little church that we went to, all 40 of us um, that went there, um, we grew up with this idea of who God is. And that, if we can put that slide back up that David had earlier, um, None of those pictures that David gave us earlier was any image of God that we thought about. We never thought of him as shepherd, king, uh, savior maybe a little bit. But really our view of God was this God of wrath, right? This God that was going to, you know, if you, did, if you messed up, he was going to squash you. Things were going to, you, you had to walk the line. It wasn't about relationship. I don't ever remember any pastor that we had talk about, uh, give a sermon on God's love. It wasn't something we talked about. It was just all kind of like behavior modification. Be good or you go to the bad place, right? So it's either over here to the bad place, over here is good. But it wasn't like I want to be there. I just don't want to be over there. 
And so kind of the story that kind of really puts that in, in perspective, we had, a, we had a week-long revival planned, like a year out in advance. I don't really know how a planned revival works, but um, we had this evangelist that came in, and he preached, and he carried his tote board with him that kept up with a number of souls that he had brought to the Lord. Like, he had the, like that's how he determined how much he was going to get paid for each one of these things. He had his tote, here's the numbers. And so he preached for an entire week to a church full of Christians, Right? So it was like, he did every night, he's like, if you want to accept Jesus, come down front. We had the altar call. We played just as I am 14 times and, you know, just over and over again. And nobody ever came. And then we got to the last day and he kind of gave his drop the mic sermon that night. He's like, if anybody's going to come, this is going to be the night. He gives it and it's still just crickets. Nobody's responding. So he had walked off. He comes back up. The last thing he leaves us with. He says, you know, I've been, I've preached this many revivals. Here's my number of souls. And he said, I've never had an experience like this before. And may Ichabod be hung upon the door of this church. Which for me was like, okay. What's that mean? And nobody else knew what it meant either. Uh, so we go home and I remember my dad on the phone. All these guys are talking. They're trying to figure out what Ichabod means. And finally somebody finds it in the Bible and it's like God has left this place or the glory of God has abandoned this place. So the guy left us with a word, this evangelist who preached for seven days, and the last thing he said is, God's not here. Kind of stuck with me a little bit, and my vision of who God is. Uh, Again, my vision of God was one of wrath, was one of anger. Uh, But even with all that, I grew up in a Christian home. We went to church. My parents were great. I had a great childhood, lived out, and just kind of, my, my parenting, my parents' parenting technique was go outside, come back when it's dark because there was nothing else to do. Um, you couldn't hide from anything, and so everybody knew everybody's business all the time. And so when I, when I was baptized at seven years old, it was kind of this big announcement for the, for the community. And it wasn't one of those things where I had this overwhelming experience of the Lord. It was the, uh, in Sunday school, a teacher teaching us that if you don't become a Christian, you don't get baptized, you go to the bad place. And I didn't want to go to the bad place, so I'm in. Right? I'll be, I'll baptize me so I don't go over there. And so I, I told my Sunday school teacher that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. And then our pastor came to our house. I uh, kind of had this big ordeal and he came in and set me on his knee. Um, parents, I don't think David's going to do that. Um, um, but he sat me on his knee and he gave me this kind of list of questions. The first thing I had to do was quote John 3.16. Right? No idea what it meant because nobody ever preached on it, but I had to have it memorized before I could be baptized in this church. And then it was answer these questions. You know, do you not want to, you know, do you, do you, you know, do you hate sin? Sure, I don't know what sin is, but yes, I don't want to go over there. So that was the process. I was baptized and then, uh, then I entered the whole uh, Bible boot camp phase, right? Any of y'all ever do Bible drill when you were younger? Remember those days? Man, that's, it's all, we had this lady, Miss Helen was her name, and she was worse than any basketball coach I ever had, right? And I played for a lot of rough basketball coaches over my time, but Miss Helen would kind of, like, she would kind of shuffle around, and she would call out scripture, and you had to be down in like a stance, like this, right? Because you had to work hard at this because you didn't want the other hundred churches to beat you when we went and competed. And so she would call out scripture. You take it. You open it up. You flip to it. You have to read it out. And the goal was to beat her, which shouldn't be hard except that she was there when the Bible was written, so she had an advantage. Um, and so it was one of those things. She beat us every time. And if you didn't win, you had to do push-ups. And so it's like we're doing push-ups in the floor. 
we'd go and compete against other churches, and we would win a lot. But if we lost, we'd come back. We had extra practices and things like that. So like, when I went and played basketball in college, it was way easier than doing Bible drill at you know 10 years old. But so my, my view of God... Growing out of this strict disciplinarian deal, you know, I feared God, I feared my dad, kind of the two things that kind of went hand in hand. Even though my dad, I, I got bigger than my dad when I was about 10, he's about this tall, um, but I still had this fear of him. And so everything was looked at through this lens of fear. And I was told in seminary, anytime you can work a quote from Jonathan Edwards into a, a sermon and centers of the hands of angry God, he said, go for it. So this is my view of God, not those three pictures, but this quote. Jonathan Edwards says that the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else, nothing else but to be cast into the fire. That's how I saw God when I became a Christian and when I throughout my developmental years in high school. I'm trying to avoid that. It wasn't about relationship here. It was about avoiding being dangled over the pit of hell. And so I'm going to be as good as I can be. High school, I didn't get in trouble. The worst thing we ever did was cut a hole in the fence of the city pool and go in and swim, which my dad knew about before I got home, how that happens. Before cell phones, how that happens, I don't know. But that kind of stuff, just, but never anything really bad. I you know, was respectful to my parents and things like that. And so I felt like I was on the right path. I wasn't praying. I'd go to church. I did exactly what I was supposed to do at church. That was sit on your hands, right? You don't, at that church, any of this stuff there, you're kind of ushering you out or calling in somebody to exercise a demon. Uh, we had, we had the rule at our church or with my, with my mom. My dad would sit on the end and I would sit here, and then my mom, and then my brother, and my two sisters, and if my brother and I moved too much, we had kind of these permanent bruises on the back of our triceps, our mom would just pinch us, like, stop, you, know, you had to sit on your hands, don't move, listen, uh, you, you could imagine how uh, the first time I walked into Wesleyan Fellowship years ago, you can imagine how a little, you know, nervous I was with that, it's like, we're raising their hands for, that are taking a vote, um, but... So as I, as I go into this, it was, it was, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but there's no foundation. It's all done out of fear. And so any time, or even the first time this whole thing is questioned for me, my faith goes away. The first time happened in October of 1996. I'll, I'll, you, I remember these dates because they were those moments for us. But uh, the, phone, the phone rang, which never rang, but it rang this time. And I knew it was bad because my dad said, come on, let's go. And that, when that happens and you don't get a whole lot of direction, and, um, you know, and dad kind of grabbed me and we walked out and we drove to our neighbor's house. Uh, we use the term neighbor loosely. It's about two miles down the road, but that was the closest one. Um, and so we get, we get there. They said, we've called the ambulance. We've called the police. But you were closer. We heard a gunshot, and we're not going in there. And, of course, my dad said, let's go. So we walked in and we opened the door and my, my little sister's best friend, 13 years old, had decided that this was bad enough. She didn't want anything to do with this. She didn't want anything to, to do with what was going on and she had shot herself and killed herself in her, in her bedroom. It's an image that you never get out of your head when you see something like this. And 
Uh, my sister was devastated, and you know, I was I was just kind of numb. I knew her; she had spent the night at her house and things like that. But she wasn't somebody that I was particularly close to. But it was one of those shocking moments. And I remember the question I asked my dad, and he can quote it for you. I asked him, I said, what did she do wrong? Like, this was her fault. That God had just decided he's going to squash this, and this is over, and this is done, and it's all on her. So that's the first time that my whole relationship with God gets rocked a little bit, going, okay, she must have done something wrong because something bad happened to her. A few months later, in January, my senior year, January of 1997, I had a group of friends, a big, you know, I say big group, but ten of us, maybe, that we used to hang out all the time, and some of them, some people we knew better than others and things like that. We had a closer group, and one of the, one of the people in our group was one of the best people I've ever known. Her name was Sarah, and Sarah was involved in her youth group she loved the lord she pursued the lord she was she was a straight a student she was in the band she was a cheerleader we were people we hung out and people were kind of drawn to her right she had this kind of thing about her that people liked to be around her and it was recognizable for all of us that everything that's good about this whole group was kind of embodied in her so we had this is plan for a group to hang out and uh, everybody kind of bailed on that. And I remember I was in Nashville, Tennessee, for a, a recruiting trip at the time. And Sarah decided, you know what? I'm going to go and watch a movie with my mom and dad. What teenager wants to watch a movie with their parents, right? So Sarah goes to them. You had to go to the store to get a movie then. She goes to get some movie, and she comes home and watches it. She goes back that night, and she drove this black van, kind of those Astro vans. And while she goes in to drop off this movie, a man that got out of prison three weeks before, got into the back of her van. And as she drove off, he drove her out to, he made her drive out to a lake where he raped and brutally murdered her. That's hard for a big town, a big city. In a small town, it's devastating. Because everybody knows who you are, everybody knows what this is. And, and it was like, this is the best of us, and this happened to her. And that question came back to me again, what, what'd she do wrong? Because if she's bad, I'm destined for something way worse. I remember the counselors coming to our school that bring all the pastors. And when you're a small town like this, you can imagine how many pastors are actually trained in anything. And so the general answer we always we got, we're meeting with these people trying to help us, and they just their, their answer was, well, it was God's will. And I remember asking the guy, so you're telling me it's God's will for her to die like that. That's what, that's what this God does that we're, we've been talking about. He goes, well, in this case, yes, that's, that's God's will. And I remember just consciously thinking, this is not anything I want to be involved in. This is nothing that I want to be a part of. This, if this is the truth, I want a different truth. Shortly after that, my grandmother passed away. My mom's sister, my aunt, passed away. And then six days later, my grandmother passed away. I graduated high school. And through a series of events over that summer, I ended up at Berry College in Rome, Georgia, to play basketball. And it was great because it was away from home. There were no parents. There was no church. There was nobody looking out after me to report back. And really for me, most importantly, there was no God. I'd come to the conclusion that if this is the God that these people serve, I don't want anything to do with him. And so I went down a path. You know, I ran, started running my race laid out here in Hebrews. You showed the picture for me. that looked a lot like that. 
It's a road to nowhere. It's turning. It's got curves. I pursued every possible thing other than God. If it looked fun, if it was flashy, anything like that, I was going after it. It was kind of like the, the dog when you had that laser pointer. Wherever you went, that's where I was going. And I got caught up in all types of things that, that, that definitely weren't of the Lord. And I hurt people. I hurt myself. I hurt family members. Uh, I just kept going after this. I remember this guy, Campus Crusade, he would come to us one time. He was like, he came and said, and he said, yeah, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And I said, I don't want to talk about Jesus. He said, well, you know, you've got to stop all these things that you're doing. And we were out at a restaurant. He said, you've got to stop this. You've got to turn. You've got to on, on, on. And so I proceeded every time he would, he walked away. And every time he walked by, I would grab the bartender and get it. I was like, look at him and go, and take another shot. It's like, I'll show you. And it was this thing. I was like, I'm going to show you that you, this is way more fun than anything you gotta, you, you've got going. I'm going to pursue this and this alone. And you can take that Jesus thing and you can go somewhere else with that. Because I'm out here, I'm looking for truth. And so far, the truth that I found was fun, it was free, and I didn't care anything about that. That's, that's where I was. And when I graduated from college, I ended up getting hurt my senior year, not finishing basketball. So you can imagine the mess I was with no responsibility and no requirements for me for that last semester of school. From that perspective, I decided I'm just going to... I'm going to move to Buckhead. I'm going to find a job. I'm going to go out. This is for Buckhead and Ray Lewis and all that kind of stuff. And so I lived down there, and I was just pursuing everything. I got a job teaching high school at Lasseter High School over in East Cobb, which looking back on it, I think, what moron put me in charge of 16-year-old kids at that point in my life? It's like, well, I, I, there's a lot of folks i got to go apologize. Some, some in here, I look around every now and then at church, and I see people I had in class my first year teaching. I just say, I'm sorry. Um, but so I'm teaching high school. I'm, I'm going to school. I coach baseball. I coach basketball. I, I finish work. I go downtown. I go out. I do all the things I was doing in college. I come in the next day, go to school. Most times I come into school, hit the lights, turn a movie on because I didn't feel like teaching. And so um, – Made me a bad employee, made me a bad teacher, and, and, and generally I treated everybody pretty poorly at that point. Because if you didn't serve my interest, then you were insignificant to me. And then I got the dreaded email. If you've ever taught in high school, the one thing you never want, actually this is second, is lunch duty. First is bathroom duty. You ever want that one. Second, lunch duty. So I got lunch duty. Every Wednesday I had to stand and guard the condiment stand. Right? There's no, no catch up here. Right? You can get one squirt, move on, uh, and you got to enforce that. And they thought it's so important there that they decided to put two of us on the condiment stand. The other, I'm a, I'm a fairly big guy. The other guy next to me was Jim Cagle. If y'all know Jim Cagle, it's like here and here, right? So kids were coming up to get like condiments and going uh, and running away. <laughs> it was, it was not, the only person that would ever intimidate us, we had one kid that would come up every day and he would kind of take his french fries and go right down the table where the ketchup, and we're like, so we just let him go. Um, but Jim and I were guarding the condiment stand. That was our job to make sure that they didn't abuse that. And Jim would look at me every Wednesday and say, hey, how you doing? And I would look and say, I'm fine. Leave me alone. He would invite you. He said, you need to come to this church with me. I was like, what, what kind of church? He's like, it's, it's in a union hall. I said, nope. 
Why are you having church in a union hall? Um, and so I said no, and he kept pursuing me. He's like, you know, uh, you know, what happened? What, what happened this weekend? And I would tell him. He goes, don't ever tell me that again. Um, and he would say, continue. He's like, like, how's your heart? It was one of the questions he used to ask me all the time. Heart's fine. I'm young. I'm 23, 24. I'm fine. What do you mean heart? Um, and he would just, and then over the year, he just got to the point where he would say, hey, you know what? I'm praying for you. And I'd say, I, I'm, I'm fine. You can pray for me. That's great. But I'm not, I don't, I don't believe that. And I happened to be upstairs next to a guy. I was teaching social studies. I was next to a guy, and he would kind of, he would, him and Jim were running the Lasseter FCA, and he would stick his head in and say, he would say, hey, what's going on? How you doing? I was like, I'm fine. Leave, seriously, leave me alone type of thing. And he was like, just want to let you know I'm praying for you. And then that, it goes a whole year like this, right? So the next year I'm thinking, please, no lunch duty. And I get lunch duty again. I'm at the condiment thing. And, and, and Jim starts coming to me and said, hey, you know, we have this leadership team of students, like 12 or 13 kids. And um, we meet every Monday night. And uh, one of the things that we want to do is pray for you on Monday. Do you mind? I was like, obviously I can't stop you or you would have stopped by now. And so he said, we're going to pray for you. And these 12 kids and these two grown men prayed for me who was rude, insulting, disrespectful, everything else. And prayed for me for over two years with seeing nothing. But then through their perseverance on their path, on their race, November 18th, 2004, I was sitting in my apartment. I'd moved out this way from Buckhead. I was sitting in my apartment, getting ready to go through my normal routine, which was to come home from practice, pop a bottle, sit on the floor, fall asleep, get up, go to school, do the same thing. And that was kind of my normal routine. I'm sitting there that night and before I had anything to drink. And I'm, I'm sitting there and uh, I can't tell you that the physical Jesus walked into my apartment and stood in front of me. But I'm telling you the physical Jesus walked into my apartment and stood in front of me that night. And I'm sitting on the floor and this is an experience and I hear the words... Again, I don't know where they come from, and it's hard for somebody like me coming out of the tradition I come out of to really claim you know, any real spirit of interaction at this point. But I hear Jesus just say to me, this is where your way has led you. Why don't you try my way? And it was this moment for me of realization. It's like my heart just broke. And for the first time, I realized truth wasn't an idea that I was pursuing, but truth was a person who was constantly pursuing me. And Jesus pursued me. And that next morning, I woke up. I went to school early, kind of went in a different way. And I hear this voice coming from the theater singing. And so I kind of go in the theater. And I sit in the back row of the theater at Lasseter High School. And I watch 200 kids. I watched 200 kids sing about the God that loves them. I watched 200 kids sing about how much they love him. And I watched them go after Jesus like no group of people I've ever seen in my whole life. It wasn't the Jesus that I learned growing up. And so in the back of that theater, I sat and I wept like a little baby. kind of like now. But I cried and Jim and... Some other folks come back to the back of the room and said, hey, do you, uh, you want to accept Jesus? And I said, yeah, more than anything ever in my life. And we prayed right there. 
um, and I became a Christian in a theater at Lasseter High School. So anytime somebody claims God is not in a public school, um, I can argue against that pretty, pretty vehemently. So that next Sunday, I went to Wesley Fellowship. I went to that church in a union hall, um, and I was so freaked out. <laughs> um, it wasn't it wasn't church like I knew church. Like people were in there with their hands up and like raising hands, and I'm sitting here. I, like I didn't even want to stand. You know, I thought they were voting on something uh, during worship. I didn't. I missed the first part of it or something. But hands are up, and people are pursuing the Lord, and they're passionate about it. And as time goes on, I keep going Sunday after Sunday, and uh, you know, I get to one point. I was like, man, I want to raise my hand. So it's like. Uh, eventually that hand went up and then like over the years this hand went up and I got to go to, to be a chaperone at youth camp for a couple of years and that kind of wrecked my life uh, in a good way. And so if you're, if you're a youth, go. It's worth it. It, was, it had an impact on me as a chaperone. Like I should have been doing that. But um, the thing for me was at this point it was this realization that it wasn't about a choice between going to a bad place or being at a good place. It was this realization of he loved and he loves me in spite of, despite of anything that I possibly could have ever done. He didn't care. And one of the things I struggled with was, like, okay, if this is the case, then why do bad things happen to all these people who claim that they love you? And I realized at that point that if God never does anything else for me, he's already done enough. He saved me from myself. He saved me from the enemy. And how rude of it was it for me to ask for more than that? And then he get into his word. He says, ask more, because he keeps giving more. It's like he's done enough. I don't, I don't deserve an easy path. The path I started going on looked a lot like this. It was straight, and it was pursuing him, but it was lonely. All those relationships I had made in college... All of my friends that I was going out with and hanging out with, instead of we go to dinner and we're hanging out and I order water. And they're going, what are you doing? Drinking water. And my language changed and how I communicated with folks changed. And they said, you know, we don't like this you very much. And one of the things that they were, they were awfully happy about is I was, I was the angry guy in the group. So I was the guy that would, you know, if something happened, I was the guy that would fight somebody and I didn't want to fight anybody anymore. I didn't want to get involved in any of that anymore. And they said, you know, we don't really like this you. So we're not going to ask you to come hang out with us anymore. And so my path, straight, because I'm pursuing the Lord hard now, but it was awfully lonely at the time. And it was one of those things where I kept, as I kept diving into the Word, He didn't say it was going to be easy. He didn't say I was going to be going with you know, billions of people on this path. He said it's narrow, right? He said, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be persecuted because of me. And I felt that idea of persecution there. It's not real legitimate persecution, but it felt like it at the time. And so I continue to do this, but I still, I was having this trouble just grasping that God can love somebody like me. All these people, and, and just understanding this forgiveness idea, I struggled with. And so I just prayed, and the Lord told me something, and I didn't want to do it. I called my parents, who still lived in that same house in Kentucky and who knew nothing about me. And I said, um, I'm going to come home for a couple of days. I want to talk to you. 
and I set my mom down, who was the most conservative woman in the world, right? Um, you know, you bear, if you say shut up in her house, you're going to get the scorn of all that thing. And she, she's extremely conservative. And so I set them down and I said, I, I got to tell you all something. And I said, actually, I got to tell you all everything. And I said, if you don't want to hear it, Mom, you're just going to put your hands over your ears because I'm saying all of it to you. And I sat in that living room and I poured out from start to finish everything and everyone I had hurt. And I remember my dad, who is, when I say not emotional, that's an understatement. But my dad kind of grabbing me, and my dad was a great dad. I want to make sure I say that. But my dad grabbing me and hugging me and saying, I didn't love you well enough. But he prayed with me right there. He said, God forgives you. Who am I to hold something against you? And he prayed with me and prayed for me. And from that point on, I was able to live in this, in this situation of just freedom because I didn't carry any of that weight. It's like I was going down this path and just dumping off junk along the way, pursuing the Lord. And so my life just radically changed. It was Isaiah 6, 5. It was, I was I, woe is me for I'm ruined in a really, really good way. And I started just pursuing the Lord. And I've been praying for years for things that I wanted. And he brought my wife into my life. And I've got four little boys who I love and who I try to I try to show that same type of love to. He took me to seminary. He, he took me back home into that place where there was all that death and that let me help and minister to people there. And I've, I've described it a lot of times as a disaster because a lot of folks didn't want to be helped. But as I pray about it and pray through it over the last you know, few months or so, it's like God just needed somebody to love people. He didn't need them to fix things. He just needed them. He needed someone to love them. And I got that opportunity, and the Lord has just been good. I don't deserve any of the things that I have, but he said, you know what? You deserve it because I love you. And so from that perspective, where I am now is in a place where I owe everything to him. And I pursue him with everything and all that I am. Uh, and it doesn't, make, doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means that there's just, when, I do, when, there, when there is sin that, that creeps into my life, it means I don't dwell in, dwell in guilt and worry about it. But I go straight to him and confess it and say, Lord, forgive me. So the takeaways, sorry, getting a little long-winded this afternoon, this morning, afternoon now. The takeaways... From this, for me, a couple of things. Individually, do we really all the time fully understand God's love? Do we live in this Romans 5, 8, where we understand that but God shows his love for us and that we were still sinners, Christ died for us? It's a hard thing to grasp when you've been where I've been and you're coming out of the pit that I've been in. And a lot of us struggle with that. And it may not be that you've gone down that type of path. It just may not be. It may be that you haven't been loved well by somebody else. And that's what's great about the passage in Hebrews. He's the perfecter of our faith, which means he's, he perfectly loves us. And so that's one aspect that we're dealing with. The other aspect is being entangled in this sin. You can't throw it off yourself. That's the one thing I pray. I say, Lord, how do I do this? How can I get rid of all this junk? He says, you can't. You just got to trust me. And so I pursue him and I go after him and he's removing things. And sometimes it was painful what he removed from me, but he removed things from me and showed me a better way, a freer way to pursue him. And so anyone, you know, whether you know the Lord or not, sin is going to drag us down. 
And we've got to go to him and say, Lord, just take it away from me. Probably more of us will fall under this other category in our church. See, it wasn't some mega church pastor that brought me to, that showed me Jesus. It wasn't somebody on television because I was changing the channel. I wasn't going to church. Right? It was no, I wasn't going to hear some great sermon and say, oh, that's it. That's what I'll do. It was people like you at work patiently praying for somebody else. Those kids and those two men prayed for me for years to understand God's love and who God is. And they didn't get frustrated. They didn't get, they didn't get mad. They didn't get angry. And if you're going at this, if you have a family member, a loved one, a coworker that you're going with and you're trying to pray for them, it can get frustrating if you're doing it alone. It's the community of believers that, like this, they come together and pray for people. And the impact is huge. I think about with, with Jim, who goes back to First Methodist, right? The people who invested in him, and then for him to invest in me and countless other people. And the opportunity I got to invest in students at, at, at the school that I taught and things like that. It's this generational transformation that's occurred. And so... It's difficult to go at it alone. There have to be people that come alongside of you and pray with you and encourage you and push you into this. So, again, the the takeaways for today. If you don't know how much Jesus loves you, please let me pray for you. I'd love to pray for you to understand that kind of love. If you have someone that you know needs you. They're on a path like that curvy road of self-destruction, and you need somebody to pray with you for that, let us pray with you. I'm going to ask Bo will come back, and our ministry teams will come up. And we say all the time, we'll pray for you about anything, and that's true. We'll pray about anything, everything, whatever you want prayer for, we will pray for it. But today, I feel like the Lord's saying there's people hurting. There's people who need to understand that I love them. And it's all right. This is an opportunity for us to kind of share that with you. And then if you have a loved one who you know is on that path of self-destruction, let's pray together. Let's pray for God to interrupt where they are and just to ruin them in a good way. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you today just first and foremost praising you. Because you saved me. You interrupted the path I was on and you made my path straight. You made the burden light and the yoke easy, Lord. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would do the same for anyone in this room that's struggling with, with understanding your, your love, Lord. That you would just step in, interrupt, and you would show how loving and how great you are. But I pray for those who are hurting because they've been praying for years for this loved one just to to recognize who you are Lord I pray encouragement for them but I pray they wouldn't get frustrated they know that you're constantly working you're constantly pursuing and they would be patient and they would persevere through this course Lord Holy Spirit we ask that you just pour out onto those folks Lord that you would just reveal yourselves in mighty ways we ask all this In Jesus' name.